Welcome to the Eye on the Cure podcast, the podcast about winning the fight against retinal disease from the Foundation Fighting Blindness. Welcome, everyone, to the Eye on the Cure podcast. I'm your host, Ben Shaberman, with the Foundation Fighting Blindness, and I'm delighted to kick off the new year with Dr. Robert McLaren as my guest. And Dr. McLaren is a world-renowned retinal surgeon and clinical research, and he's been on the forefront of gene therapy development for retinal degenerative diseases. Dr. McLaren has been a lead or co-investigator on several clinical trials for retinal gene therapies, including those for RPE65-associated LCA, choroideremia, X-linked retinitis pigmentosa, and age-related macular degeneration. And he was also a lead investigator for an artificial retina or retinal prosthesis, as we often call it, developed by a German company called Retina Implant AG. And finally, I wanted to mention that in 2016, he conducted the first robotic eye surgery on a human. And we'll be talking about that a little later. So Dr. McLaren, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much indeed, Ben, for the kind invitation. So a little more on Dr. McLaren, just to give you a little idea of what his day-to-day activities are like. He has many. He is professor of ophthalmology at the University of Oxford a consultant ophthalmologist at the Oxford Eye Hospital. He's an honorary professor of ophthalmology at the University College London Institute of Ophthalmology. He's an honorary consultant vitreoretinal surgeon at Moorfields Eye Hospital. And also, very importantly, he leads the retinal research lab at the Nuffield Department of Clinical Neurosciences at Oxford. A little bit on... Dr. McLaren's education is a Bachelor of Medicine and Bachelor of Surgery from the University of Edinburgh Medical School. And those bachelor degrees are kind of like our doctorate degrees here in the U.S. And he also has a a doctorate, like a Ph.D. in optic nerve regeneration from the University of Oxford. So lots of great experience and credentials. Very exciting to have you on the podcast. But to begin, I'd like to have you tell our listeners what drew you to the eye and the retina and what inspired you to become a surgeon along with that? Well, thank you indeed, Ben. That is, of course, um, a very perceptive question. When I went to medical school, I always felt that my practical skills were better than my intellectual skills. Uh, And for that reason, I had in mind a surgical path. And I enjoy the creativity of doing things with your hands. The background further is that my father was a photographer and I used to accompany him a lot on photographic trips and I worked in his darkroom and learned a lot about cameras and optics. So when I kind of specialized in surgery at the very beginning during my medical school career, I was naturally attracted to the concept of eye surgery because I'd already prepared myself a lot to understand the eye and how it worked. And I think it was in my second year at medical school when I, was able to use the ophthalmoscope for the first time to see the back of the eye. And I could see in all its beauty, the blood vessels, the nerves, everything there, clear and precise. And it really did appeal to me. And from that day on, I decided to have my career going forward to be an eye surgeon. And I'm very pleased that I managed to meet that goal. 
that's a great story, especially about your dad. Do you find it challenging doing such delicate surgery? I, that That's what seems impressive to me is how careful you have to be as a retinal surgeon. Not that other surgeries, you don't have to be that careful, but the retina is so fragile and so small. I think you're right. And I often talk about this with, with medical students. And when I was a schoolboy, in very early, before the age of 10 years old, I used to spend a lot of time painting tiny toy models, like to toy soldiers. And although one can't practice as an eye surgeon in childhood, as if, for instance, if you're a tennis player, you might play tennis from an early age. If you're someone who basically has been doing very fine motor skills from early time in your childhood, it's likely that you will have ingrained in your brain and those networks the ability to make microscopic movements, which is then something that you can translate into an eye operation when looking down the microscope. And indeed, I was using optics to see what I was doing when I was painting these very tiny soldiers and figures in great detail in my early childhood. That's really interesting. I remember those days when, when we were kids painting models. I don't know if anybody does that anymore, but that's interesting that you were able to translate that skill into surgical skill. Very cool. So it's one thing to do surgery, but it's yet quite another to do research and development of therapies. Were you always drawn to research and working on emerging therapies? I think um, it's very easy to think about being a clinician and doing research as separate independent entities. I'm very much of the opinion that if we're treating our patients, we are using techniques, equipment, ideas that are being developed and proven by physicians and surgeons in bygone years. And it is our duty to try and push the field forward and try and develop new treatments. And so I think the research in itself is just an extension of being a good clinician. Because when you see lots of diseases, you recognize patterns, you can then think about treatment modalities in a way that'd be extremely difficult for a commercial scientist or academic scientist who doesn't work in the field of ophthalmology. And I always encourage my colleagues to think a little bit to do that themselves. And of course, one can start doing research by working with commercial organizations running clinical trials. And at the other end, you can get involved doing lab work as I do and doing work and research of your own. It is possible. And I think it's a very important part of the work that we do as clinicians. Right. And you were talking about therapy development as a, an extension of your clinical practice with inherited retinal diseases. Uh, there's such a, a huge unmet need that I can see how therapy development is such a natural extension because you want to help those patients. Again, the, the need is huge. So one area of therapy development, really the area that you've been involved with most is gene therapy. And we'll spend quite a bit of time talking about gene therapy, but for our listeners, can you give them just a quick definition, maybe a few sentences to explain exactly what gene therapy is? Yeah, gene therapy is, broadly speaking, a medical treatment technique where you try and correct the disease by using genetic material rather than classic pills that you might take by mouth or injections. And that genetic material could be DNA or it could be RNA. And as you may recall, the DNA is a genetic code on your cells that is on your chromosomes. And the RNA is a little bit of a reading uh, material that comes off the DNA to make a specific protein. 
The great advantage of gene therapy is that you can be very targeted with a specific gene, and also you can use a viral vector, which is a means of delivering the DNA into a cell, and that can be very specific. For instance, if you take, uh, if you have inflammation in the eye, for instance, and you take a steroid pill, you know that pill is going to affect every single cell in your body. It's going to be absorbed. It's going to be in your blood everywhere. A relatively small proportion will go into the eye. But if you can deliver a gene therapy treatment into the retina, into the eye, you can always then treat the cells directly. And for that reason, I'm firmly of the opinion that gene therapy will take over uh, in future and replace a lot of the work we're doing at the moment with injections into the eyes and giving patients pills by mouth. Right. Great explanation. And the, the eye, the retina especially, are such good targets because they're small and so easily accessible. So the gene therapy for the retina got off the ground in earnest somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 years ago, especially with those early trials for RPE65 and ultimately Luxterna, the first regulatory approved gene therapy became available about a dozen years later, 10 years later. Since the advent of that clinical trial in 2007, 2008, we've had a lot of great advancements. There's a lot of great activity. There have been some successes, but there have also been challenges. And I guess this is kind of a big question, but where do you feel the field of gene therapy is at now? What have we accomplished and what do we need to do to advance the field even forward and get more therapies out to patients? Well, I don't know how long this podcast is, but on the second point, we could be here 24 hours if you want. So I'll try and summarize it a bit. Okay, let's not forget that we do have an approved treatment in gene therapy. And in the UK, that was the first one to be approved. Uh, the National Health Service approved uh, the Luxterna. I should obviously uh, you know, acknowledge that the background work to that was led by mainly Gene Bennett and Al McGuire in the United States. And you know that work over 10 years or more led to the approval. And nowadays, my residents just seem to think it's a normal thing and they don't appreciate the huge amount of work that went into getting us up that first step. Because clearly, now that we have one approved treatment, it's going to be much easier to get other treatments approved because we've established the principle that gene therapy using the adeno-associated viral vector is effective in treating genetic diseases affecting the eye. And ideally, we want to go in and intervene as early as possible. There is no point really treating a retinal degeneration when there's only 1% of cells remaining. You'll get a response, sure. But ideally, you want to preserve as many cells as possible. And I think as we understand more about gene therapy, we are in a position now where we can be more confident in going in earlier with earlier interventions because we're more aware of the side effects. Now, this list leads me on to another important point is that when we think about gene therapy and we think about developing these very exciting viral vectors in the lab, it's important to remember that at some point we need to inject it under the retina in a patient. And so in parallel with developing the gene therapy molecular biology, I've already been working with my team in Oxford and colleagues elsewhere to improve the success of the surgery, to make the surgery safer. And I was at a meeting in Rome a couple of weeks ago, a session, a whole session on subretinal gene therapy with leading surgeons from all around the world, now established with the technique, talking about little nuances. Whereas when I started out in this over 10 years ago, you know, if I stood up and told an audience of ophthalmologists that I'd be detaching the retina to inject a virus underneath it, they would almost have called security to have me evicted, thinking I was some kind of crazy guy. So... You know, we've moved a lot, but I mention this because it's important to remember 
that we need to develop the surgery to deliver the vector at the same time as developing these interesting technologies. Right. And that's a very important element of getting a gene therapy to a patient. And I, I don't think we appreciate that enough. And can you talk about how you've used robotics to improve potentially the outcome of surgery to the retina? Absolutely. I, I was at the European Retina Society meeting, otherwise known as your retina meeting, a few years ago. And um, I think it must have been around about 2014. And um, I was pleased to have received an award at that uh, symposium, but I came second to Mark Jasmet, who won the main award of the meeting for his work on developing this robotic system. And effectively, what it is, it's, um, it's an arm that moves up and down and moves precisely with eight independent motors and it's remotely controlled. And effectively, it takes over one of the hands of the surgeon when doing an operation inside the eye. So I had a chat with Mark and we discussed things. And subsequently, it became apparent to me that what we want to do in gene therapy is we want to detach the retina extremely slowly and we want to do it as still as possible. Because every time you move the needle in the eye slightly, if the needle has penetrated the retina to inject the virus, then it'll make the hole a little bit bigger. And the result of that would be the leakage of virus coming back from the subretinal space into the vitreous, which, as we know, will cause significant inflammation. So subsequent to the meeting, I contacted Mark and his robotics team in Eindhoven, and we agreed to work together on the robot to see if we could find a way of actually using it to do injections under the retina. Now, at the time, the robot had never been used at all in the human. So before going to the ethics committee and doing something really exciting, like using a robot to do gene therapy, in other words, an unknown use for an unknown device in an unknown therapy, we set up the trial so that I would do the operation that is relatively straightforward, that could be, could be taken over manually if the robot failed. So our first study was to look at doing epiretinal membrane peels and ILM peels in treating membranes and macular holes. And we did it properly. We had 12 patients. We randomized them to the manual surgery, traditional surgery, or the robot surgery. And I'm pleased to say that that trial was a huge success. The robot wasn't any quicker than the manual treatment, but it was just as safe. And uh, this was the most important thing because it was a safety study. And of course, the plan was then to use the robot for subretinal injections. And we subsequently did another follow-on study for the injections. And that was published in the AGO last year, I think, using it to inject TPA, which is a clot lysis product for, for dissolving blood clots in patients who have macular degeneration to displace the hemorrhage. And again, that was a very successful trial. And we're currently working on doing the final finishing uh, touches to the robotic surgery to bring it into clinical trial now for doing gene therapy treatments. And I should point out that it's very exciting research. The robot has a huge advantage in that you can have complete control of the operation we can advance the robot, you know, sort of 50 microns at a time, and it's completely still inside the eye. And that means we can slow the infusion down. If you slow down the infusion, you're going to get a lot less stretching of the retina, which is going to cause less damage in the thin retina, and basically make the whole process much, much safer. So that's currently where we are, and also developing it for other exciting technologies of injecting things into the eye. And uh, I'm pretty sure that you'll hear more about that over the next year or so. That's so exciting. We greatly appreciate those advancements because, as we've alluded to already, that surgery is so delicate. So to um, come up with technology that can do it even more safely is, is wonderful. To get back to the gene therapy advancement, the work we're doing to get more gene therapies across the finish line, 
in some of the recent clinical trials, we've had nice evidence of efficacy, but we've also had challenges meeting the endpoint of the trial, the outcome measure that the regulators need to actually approve the therapy. How do you see the field moving forward so in these trials, we can actually get more therapies across the finish line? Well, that's a very interesting point. And again, we could talk a lot about this is a, a, a constant question that, that we're being asked. So, so one of the problems we have is that the regulators set the bar very high. Now, that's a good thing. Uh, of course, we always want safety. But if the bar is set so high that it's no longer commercially viable for a company to market a product and run a trial for a rare disease in which there are very few patients at the end that are going to be treated, then we're running into problems. Okay. So I think they need to be a little bit more aware of how difficult it is for the companies and how expensive it is. Uh, to give you an example, there is a huge uh, emphasis on testing of drug release products for the gene, gene therapy vectors, which is quite onerous. And on top of that, we have the European Medicines Agency and the FDA, which are the two main regulators for Europe and, U and US and elsewhere. So at the moment, they both of them require independent testing of the drug product and, and drug substance before they approve it in their country, which is going to take hundreds of vials. Um, and it's just simple things like, you know, if we could just get them to agree on the standards together, we would only need to go through the process once rather than twice. We possibly could only have one trial rather than two, and we could increase the N numbers, and therefore we could achieve the endpoints with a fewer number of patients in total, including both the US and, and the European Union, or Europe, and I include the UK in that. You know, we're both members of we're all members of NATO you know we've agreed on standards to go to war together and it just it's a great shame that we can't get our regulatory authorities to agree because this is really a big cost and to make matters even more confusing the regulators want different endpoints so the European Medicines Agency is happy with a two-line gain of vision the FDA would like to have a, a three-line gain of vision the European Medicines Agency is not very, very keen on having a low dose um, as, a, as a, you know, in addition to the control and the therapeutic dose. The FDA wants to have a low dose and a high dose as well as a control. So if they could just get together and have a discussion and agree on a common framework that would exist on both sides of the Atlantic, that would again reduce the trial cost considerably, which would help encourage the companies to keep the course with the rare diseases. Uh, knowing that the, uh, their costs of running the trials and, and would, would, would be lower and the chance of meeting the endpoint would be greater. So, you know, this, this I think, is where, where I think we need to give a bit more guidance for the regulators to try and get them to see it from our perspective. Because the reason that the trials are not successful is not necessarily because they haven't met the endpoint in terms of the clinical result to the therapy. It may be issues around the manufacturing and maybe other issues around the cost that means the companies are not really keen to push it and argue the case with the regulators. Right. Well, thank you for elucidating that need to, to educate the regulators and have them collaborate and work together. And I know at the Foundation Fighting Blindness, we're working to make that happen as well. So, Dr. McLaren, to close out our discussion, I know you run a really innovative research lab at University of Oxford, and you're coming up with all kinds of new therapies and approaches to therapies. Can you talk about, perhaps give an example or two of what you're working on and what you're excited about? Yeah, we, um, 
we we have basically i guess three main areas of research i have a like a clinical research program where we have research optometrists or incredibly talented people looking at these endpoints looking at the, the re- reproducibility of testing look at reliable measurements of visual function in patients with rare diseases because we've got clinics in Oxford full of these patient rare diseases, there's a, there's a lot of patients they can look at. And so that's very, very helpful. And that helps us inform companies and regulators and others on what sort of endpoints might be helpful and reliable. We also have a program where we're actually doing the basic science in the lab. I have anywhere between six and eight PhD students, five postdocs, additional scientists, visiting uh, clinicians and visiting research scientists. And we're all working on gene therapy programs. When I started the program here in Oxford over 10 years ago, We're looking at gene replacement therapy to try and tick off the most common retinal diseases that we could simply replace the gene with. But we've pretty much done that now, uh, particularly since we've seen the huge successful results with our X-linked retinitis pigmentosa gene therapy trial. So we're now moving on to look at ways of dealing with the larger genes and the dominant genes. And of course, all of that is CRISPR and gene editing. So everyone in my lab is working on CRISPR therapies, and we are using the platform of the AAV to deliver the gene editing proteins into the retina to make the necessary corrections and edits. And we've had some fantastic results there, again, which we'll be announcing in due course um, on the the CRISPR therapies. And the third part of our research is really working with the companies in the clinical trials of the products that we've been involved with. And for that reason, we're working very closely with the new company, Beacon Therapeutics, which is a, a new company based, uh, based in Boston, which has got the assets of the, the IP from Oxford combined with the assets of AGTC, which has got a fantastic manufacturing facility. So we're working with them and again, guiding them with a the clinical trial, you know, training surgeons, identifying sites around the world where patients might be selected, you know, informing people on how to run clinical trials, all this sort of thing, which is really a great benefit in ultimately getting the product approved. So you can see, if you like, there's a sort of conveyor belt, and I haven't put, put, put the boxes in the correct order on the conveyor belt, but just to, to reiterate, the first box would be to develop the new technology in the lab uh, and then to show it works, maybe in an animal model. Second would be to look at patients with that disease, identify the endpoints, and basically give the company the information they would need to say, how this is how you design the clinical trial. This is the number of patients around. This is where the patients are located. These are the endpoints that you're going to get, and this is how you're going to get it approved. And then the third part of that equation is to engage with industry and raise the funding, the commercial funding, the venture capital funding, to support that clinical trial going into, into, into phase three and beyond to get the product approved. So it's not enough. You know, I say to my colleagues, you know, it's not enough to do exciting research in the lab and you know, get your nature medicine paper you know, and, then, and then start something else. It's up to us as clinicians, as clinical scientists, to go beyond just the proof of principle and the great science in the nature medicine paper, and then go on and run the clinical trial and get the commercial funding and put it into the back into the clinical domain. Because as clinical experts, we are the ones that can help guide the commercial people. Uh, it's very difficult for them to do that by themselves. So that's the vision I have. Uh, and the vision I think has been, for me, quite clear, but it, it, you need a bit of a vision because there are a lot of setbacks on the path. But sometimes I can sort of take myself forwards in time and imagine I have an approved treatment or disease, what am I going to do to get that treatment approved? And then look back at the hoops that one needs to jump through to get to that point. It's a bit like you can go up to the summit of Mount Everest and look down and you can see more clearly the route to the top than you can sometimes when you're sitting at the bottom covered in snow and and cloud uh, with not much visibility. So I think that's a great asset we have as clinicians when we do laboratory research. We can see the direction it needs to go in. 
and we can use our clinical acumen to understand a lot more the basic principles of the diseases we're trying to treat. So eloquently put, and you've had a lot of success in that endeavor over the last several years. And I think I can say for our listeners, we're so grateful that you continue to move forward in clinical development of therapies, because it is so challenging, as you've just said, and we need the the pioneers and the soldiers on the front line like you to move these therapies forward. It isn't easy. You, you just can't show efficacy in a mouse or an animal and, and then check the box. That That's just really the first part of the challenge. And again, we appreciate the great work you're doing on the clinical trial front lines. Dr. McLaren, this has been very enjoyable, very insightful. It's a great way. This conversation has been a great way to kick off 2024. And I greatly appreciate you taking time out of your day to give us your great insights and experiences. And thank you very much indeed for the, giving me the opportunity to speak. And I would say to all of your listeners, please don't give up hope. We're all working very hard behind the scenes to find a cure. Thanks for saying that. And again, we're glad to have you driving that hope. And listeners, Happy New Year to you all. It's always great to have you on the podcast, and we look forward to having you back again soon. This has been Eye on the Cure. To help us win the fight, please donate at foundationfightingblindness.org.